So I'm sitting there listening to these guys and thinking about all the reasons why we need to be passionately involved in Haiti. And I want to give you two. The first one, I think, is kind of obvious. Uh, The first one is that Jesus commands us to take his gospel and to go into all the world. And then, in addition to that for us, he's sort of uh, given us a unique arrangement by his spirit with Mission of Hope. In other words, he's clearly led us, I think, into this relationship with them, and he has blessed it massively. And I'm excited about what he'll continue to do in the future as we roll forward So that is a clear kind of a no-brainer reason, but I'm going to give you another one because it ties into what we're going to talk about today. The the reason is, even as you heard these guys say, a lot of the people who, for example, are going to move into this grace house are already believers in Jesus. Now, what does that necessarily then make them? It makes them our family. It makes them our brothers and sisters. And the depth of that relationship is something that we're going to talk about in part today. Guys, we share with those people, we share one spirit who has awakened us to one faith in one Savior, one gospel, one God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, but then also of every single one of us. And emblematically, the place where we see that played out perhaps most clearly, most visibly to our literal eyes is the table of the Lord. We share one table with all of the people of God everywhere in the world, here and including in Haiti. So they're family, and what do you do for family? You do whatever it takes, right? All right, so as we continue this morning with our study of the Gospel of Luke, we come to the table of the Lord this morning, or really to the institution of the table of the Lord this morning. The Lord Himself will take a different table, and He'll make it this table in the story that we're going to look at, which is the story of the last Supper, but it is not called the story of the Last Supper because it's literally the last meal that Jesus will ever eat. That's not true. We see him eating even within the Gospel of Luke after this, even though there's only a few chapters left. After his sufferings, after his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples who are understandably kind of freaked out. I mean, you know, it's a little bit unusual to see someone actually die, be embalmed, be buried, and then three days show up again later alive. And so to prove that it's actually him and physically, not just a spirit or a ghost or whatever, he's going, guys, you know, touch me, poke me in the chest, look at my hands, look at my feet. Hey, you know what? Do you have something to eat? Oh, you do. And he eats it. He's proving that he's alive. So it's not the last meal that he ever eats. It's not even the last meal that he talks about, because even in the institution of this meal, he looks forward to another meal. It's the meal that he will have with these guys who are his apostles. Do you hear that word? But not just the apostles, but everyone who comes to faith in Christ through the apostles at the end of this age. It's curious, and I don't know if you picked this up in your personal worship this week, but as you roll through this gospel of Luke toward this story, this last supper, it's the disciples of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus. You get to this story, what do they call the apostles of Jesus? It's subtle and it's important. What's the difference? Disciples are learners. Apostles are sent ones. And who are they sent to? To the world. Listen, there is no church apart from the work of God through these men. There's no New Testament apart from the work of God through these men. There's no Christianity apart from the work of God through these men. None of us are here today apart from the work of God through these men. Keep that in mind because Jesus is going to share a meal with these men called apostles, the implication being that he's also sharing this meal in some sense with you. 
It's available to you. It's for you if you have faith in him. And it is, I think I can safely say, the most significant meal ever had, and clearly, without any question, the most expensive meal ever had. Not because, you know, Jesus and the disciples broke the bank or something on this meal, but, but because of who Jesus is and because of what he does. Guys, from the opening lines of this book, who is Christ? He's God. He is the invisible, intangible, I can't see him, smell him, hear him, taste him, touch him, creator God of all of the world, who, by a supernatural conception, clothes himself in our humanity. He takes upon himself our flesh and blood, God and man, in Christ. God made tangible, visible, and so forth. And yet, here's what he's going to do in this meal. He's going to take the emblems of his body broken for us and of his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, and he's going to say, guys, here, take, eat, drink, and from now on, do this in remembrance of me. But here's what else he's going to do, and it's really important. Here's what else this table demands of us. It demands that we examine ourselves, and specifically, in regard to the sincerity of our faith in Jesus and the sincerity of our repentance, of our sin, that it might be forgiven by Jesus and the sincerity of our love for Jesus, but not just for Jesus, but for the spiritual family that by coming to this table and through faith in Jesus, we are made a part of. All right? So we pick up our study today, Luke 22, beginning in verse 1, where Luke gives us the setting for the meal, which is hugely significant. When he says this, he says, now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. So right out of the gate, he's saying, okay, last supper story takes place during the Passover. And in fact, as we'll see as we continue in this passage, the last supper, these guys come together and we in them to celebrate the Passover. It's what they think they've come to celebrate. And then Jesus completely redefines it, but in a way that's consistent with the Passover, in a way that unfolds and unpacks its real meaning. So what is the Passover or what was it to these guys? It's the meal that for 1,446 years in a row up until the moment of this Last Supper, the Jews all over the world had been celebrating annually as they remembered through this meal and all of its implements, all of its elements. It's a very carefully structured, instructive meal their deliverance as a people of God from who? From slavery to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. And how was that deliverance affected? Well, ultimately, it was affected through the sacrifice, through the blood of spotless, perfect, innocent lambs. And I say that because if you know the story and the story of the Passover and of their deliverance, God comes to Moses and says, hey, hey, Moses, I know you guys have been enslaved for 430 plus years at this point. And so for like 430 years, you guys have been wondering, what day will be the day of my deliverance? Let me clear that up for you. That day, Moses is going to be tomorrow. So pack up, get ready, put your shoes on, get your staff out, be ready to go. And here's why your day of deliverance is coming tomorrow. Because tonight, I am going to bring judgment upon every household in the land of Egypt, every household, Moses, that is not covered by the blood of a spotless, perfect, innocent lamb. Everyone. So here's what you need to do. You need to gather together all the heads of the households. Do you hear that? It's a family event. And you need to instruct them to go find a spotless, perfect, innocent lamb. So like if you're in the spotless, perfect, innocent lamb business, this is your day, right? I mean, you are jacked about today. This is awesome. Great day for you. Go get them. Kill them. 
Take their blood. You're like, oh, this is icky. Yeah. Paint the doorposts and the thresholds of your door, the lentils. And then get inside and don't come out. Everyone inside that is covered by the blood, okay, I will pass over in judgment, but everybody that is not covered by the blood, I will visit judgment upon. And here will be that judgment. Every firstborn living creature, man, woman, child, cockroach, ferret, parakeet, in that household will suffer death. And look, Moses, I know this is a little bit gross. I know that it's icky. I know that it's bloody. I know that it might be a little bit confusing to you. I know you're probably wondering, oh, but Lord, why lambs? I mean, we love lambs. They're gentle. They're kind. Why not a wild boar? You know, something with tusks. I mean, but a day is coming, Moses, when this is all going to be clear to you. All right, step out of that story. Do you know when that day was? It was this day that we're studying today in the Gospel of Luke. It was at this meal that it all becomes clear because Jesus takes that meal and that celebration and he turns it into this meal that's before us today, his table, and to the celebration of the true Lamb of God who shed his blood to take away the sins of all who put their faith and trust in him and claim his blood as the covering for their sin of the true firstborn, the firstborn, if you will, of God who on behalf of the whole household of God, listen, not everyone in those houses died, just the firstborn. Okay, on behalf of the whole household of God, suffered the judgment of God, which is death that all of us deserved. But he did it in our place. It's an amazing table. But it's a table that calls us to self-examination too. So Luke says, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. There it is. And now look at here. And the chief priests and the scribes, who as we've seen for weeks now, were as a result of envy and great wickedness, seeking how to put Jesus to death, were at least at this point in the narrative, still trying to figure out how to put Jesus to death. They couldn't figure it out. And here's the problem. They, were, they feared, it says, the people. In other words, the people loved Jesus. And since the people were always around Jesus also, there was this sort of sheltering of Christ by the people. And they're going, man, I don't know how we can go arrest him because the people love him and they're always around him. We need to find a way to get him when nobody's around. That's the dilemma. And so then we read that Satan, the evil one himself, solves the dilemma for them by entering into Judas Iscariot whose faith and whose repentance and whose love for Jesus and for Jesus' people was not sincere. And who was also of the number of the twelve. Now, I want you to feel that and feel it in light of the intimacy of the twelve. For Jesus is going to reveal just how intimate this spiritual family is, and it's more significant. It's a greater level of intimacy even than our flesh and blood family members. It's a big deal. The Lord knows the hurt of betrayal. 
So then Satan solves the dilemma by entering into Judas, called Iscariot, who was also of the number of 12. And then Judas, look at what he does, went off and, and conferred with the chief priests and the officers of the temple, who would actually be the guys doing the arresting, about how it is that he might betray Jesus to them. And when Judas did this, these guys were really excited. They were glad, and they agreed to give Judas money, which was actually what he worshipped in exchange for Jesus, is the idea. And so Judas consented to this deal and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them when? In the absence of a crowd. And so now with all of that worked out, Luke says that then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed and the Passover meal had to be observed. And so then in obedience to the command of God to observe the Passover by having this meal, Jesus sent some faithful disciples, some truly repentant disciples, some sincerely in love with him and with his people disciples, Peter and John. He sent them saying, go And prepare the Passover, but for who? Because I think it's really important for us, Jesus says, so that we, in case they missed it the first time, may eat it together. And I love that because that's weird in this setting. And I say that because, look, here's what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, look, guys, um, here's the deal. I know that like me, all of you have family that have all ascended to the city of Jerusalem like we have to celebrate the Passover. I know that for the last 1,446 years, the tradition is to celebrate it with your family. I know that all of your life every year, you've celebrated this with your family. I know that the expectation is for all of you now to go and celebrate it with your family. And so then in respect of that tradition, hey, I'm going to give you guys the night off. We'll circle back at like, let's say 8.30 tomorrow morning, and we'll kick it off again tomorrow. Go have a great night with your family. It's not what he does. He says, hey, look, even though for 1,446 years, this has been a family meal, the youngest child asks a question, why is this night different from every other night? And the father begins then this meal of instruction. It's a family meal. Even though all of your families are there, listen, even though Mary, the mother of Jesus, as we know from the gospel of John, is there, even though Mary's husband Joseph at this point is dead and Jesus is the head of that family now, and again, she and no doubt all of his siblings are there, Even though this is the night before he dies, it's Thursday, he dies on Friday. Even though, even though, even though, Jesus says, look, if you guys have plans with your families, cancel them. I've canceled mine. Here's who I'm going to spend this night with with, and it's you. It's my, what? Not just disciples, apostles. He has a meal for his spiritual family, and that includes us. It's to us that he offers the broken bread of his flesh, the spilled wine of his blood. And it's us also that he calls to self-examination. And so Luke tells us in verse 8 that Jesus sent Peter and John into the city of Jerusalem saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it together. And then they said to him, well, you know, Jesus, this is a great idea, but Where will you have us prepare it exactly? Because they're not staying in a hotel. They're not staying in somebody's house or anything like that. They are camping out in the campground of the Garden of Gethsemane, this private olive grove that's on the Mount of Olives. 
So it doesn't have the nice low, you know, U-shaped table. It doesn't have all the stuff that they would need to properly prepare this meal. That is, practically speaking, a big problem. And so Jesus said to them, and now notice the specificity of his direction, because it's really important to the story. He says, behold, when you have entered into the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you and follow him to the house that he enters, which has to be creepy if you're the guy with the water jar, because like... Why are these guys funny? You know, and then they follow you into the house. You know, like I'd be running at that point. And when you go into the house, he says, tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, perfectly furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as Jesus had told them, which tells us that Jesus knows Everything about everyone, every one of us and every one of them, and every one of them includes Judas. Guys, you have to enter into this meal understanding Jesus knows that Judas is the one who will betray him. He knows that he's been sold. The deal's been made. He knows exactly how and when it's going to occur. Luke is telling you he's the omniscient God. He knows absolutely everything, and he plays into the hand of this whole conspiracy. Because it's the Father's will that he be the Lamb of God. The firstborn who on behalf of the household suffers the judgment of God, which is death, that we might ultimately have eternal life. And so Peter and John went and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came for them to share this meal together as an intimate faith family, Jesus reclined at the head of this table. It doesn't mean he sat in a recliner chair. The tables are low. They laid on their left side. They propped themselves up on their left elbow and with some pillows and they ate with their right hand. They laid it down at the tables and Jesus is at the head of a U-shaped table with his disciples all around him. That's the idea. And you can hear his heart. He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with who? With you. It says something about who you are. With you before I suffer. He knows what's coming. It's all dialed in. For I tell you that I will not eat it again, meaning this supper, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God at the end of the age, when I gather for this meal with my apostles and everyone who comes to faith in me, who can trace their faith back to them, which is, well, every Christian this side of the cross. And then Luke says that Jesus, as the head of this intimate spiritual family, and in accordance with 1,446 years' worth of tradition, took a cup full of wine, which by tradition would have been one of four cups in this Passover meal. And when he had given thanks... He said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes, until that meal that I just, well, told you about a second ago. And then Luke says that Jesus took the bread, meaning this unleavened bread that the Jews had used for 1,446 years in this Passover meal, in remembrance of the fact that when they were told to leave Egypt, it was like, get out right now. And so they grabbed their lumps of dough that they were to bring with them, and they didn't have time to leaven it. So the bread that they then made was what kind of bread? It was unleavened bread. So in remembrance of the haste with which they then had to leave Egypt, they used unleavened bread in this meal. And so Jesus took this unleavened bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and then he reinterpreted it completely by saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this, not in remembrance of the deliverance of our forefathers from Egypt, but 
instead in remembrance of me and of how I will deliver you tomorrow, he's saying, of what's coming for me. And when you think about what's coming for him and you think about leavened bread or unleavened bread in particular, you can kind of see why bread is such a great image. I mean, if you think about it, first of all, bread is made from from wheat, is it not? It's violently cut off from its life source. Okay, well, Jesus was violently cut off, and I'm going to use this language intentionally, from the land of the living. What is that language from? Isaiah, who said that this is what would happen to Christ with great specificity 750 years before he was even born. What happens to that wheat? Then it's beaten. Why is it beaten? To to loosen the husks around the kernels, and the kernels is what you want. Jesus was beaten. Then you take those kernels, and, and, and what, what do you do with that wheat? You throw it up into the wind. You winnow it. That's the language of it, which is a biblical emblem of judgment. The wind comes and takes away the chaff. The kernels that you want fall down, already having been loosened because they were beaten so badly. Then you take the kernels of that wheat, and what do you do? You grind it. You crush it under a millstone. Did not Isaiah say he would be crushed for our iniquities. You take that, you make it into flour that is kneaded with fists. You feeling all this? Then you put it in an oven, if you will. You subject it to the intense heat of fire, which again is a biblical emblem of judgment. And then when it's unleavened bread, look at your bread when you come forward today. It's unleavened bread. If you get a piece big enough, one of the things you'll be able to see is that unleavened bread is striped. Is it not by his stripes that we are healed, Isaiah said? And it's pierced. Hands, feet, and side. It's an amazing image of the sufferings of Christ. So Jesus took the unleavened bread of the Passover that the Jews had used for the previous 1,446 years to commemorate the haste with which their people, their forefathers, were forced to leave Egypt. And he said, look, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them and then reinterpreted it by saying, this is my body. And oh, what an appropriate image it is. Do this, not in the remembrance of our deliverance of our forefathers from Egypt, but in remembrance of me and of how I will deliver you tomorrow. And likewise, Jesus took the cup after they had eaten, meaning another one of the four cups of wine, okay? And parenthetically, how is wine made? The grapes are violently removed, are they not? I mean, just ask the grape. It it can't be a good experience. From their life source. And they are crushed until they give up every ounce of their blood. Jesus then took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood that I will shed once and for all tomorrow to cover over all of your sin. And he's saying, do this in remembrance of me. And the word remembrance is significant because it's not a cognitive recall. It's not where you kind of go, we get together and go, hey, you guys remember that Jesus suffered and died for you and was buried and on the third day rose again from the dead and through him you have forgiveness and eternal life. Yes, we remember that cognitively, Tom. That's wonderful. That is a great reminder Remembrance is experiential. Remembrance is deep. Remembrance is a re-experiencing in some sense that moves you to be different. It's a different kind of deal. I remember the first time I went to Israel, we walked down the Mount of Olives. um, And it's a huge cemetery now on the 
on the Mount of Olives, and there are all these grave sites, and there are all these stones on top of the grave sites. And I said to our guide, you know, what's with the stones? Because, I mean, like, stones all over the place. And he said, oh, well, when people visit the graves of their lost relatives here, it's common for them to take a stone and place it on top of the grave site, as if to say, I am reburying you. I am re-experiencing your loss. I have remembered you, not cognitively, but experientially. Do this in remembrance of me. Get the idea? And then what does he do? Now he calls us to self-examination. Jesus says, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. And it's like all these guys are like, you know, get my hand off the table. Too late. Sorry, because all of you have your hand on the table. That's the idea. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. But here's what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't specifically identify Judas as the betrayer. Even in the other Gospels where he's like, well, we're putting our hand into the same cup. It says the disciples, when Judas left, were confused. Like, they just thought he went to go do something. They didn't really get it. It's very discreet. And yet, hang on a second, because Jesus knows who's going to betray him. He knows everything. Guys, when you get to town, you'll see a guy with a water jar. Follow him into the house. Tell the master you need an upper room. He knows everything. Why? Doesn't he call Judas out? Because he wants every one of those guys, those apostles, and every one of us to ask the question, hey, well, wait a minute. Am I that guy? Am I that woman? Am I that person? Is this heart of a betrayer, does that, does that reside in me? Is, is my faith in him sincere? Is it, is it authentic? Is Is my repentance real? Is my love authentic? And that's exactly what happens. For Luke then says, and they began to question one another as to which of them it could be who was going to do this. He's brilliant. And Jesus doesn't put them or us through this exercise, if you will, to shame us. He puts us through this exercise to call us to himself, to reveal to us our need for him, to cause us to come to him and find his forgiveness and renew the sincerity of our faith, of our repentance and of our love. And so then before we come to this table in just a minute to receive spiritually the bread of the body of the true Lamb of God that was authentically and really broken, that His blood might cover over our sin. The firstborn of God who received the judgment of God, which is death on behalf of the whole household, that by His grace and through faith in Him that He Himself inspires, we have the privilege of belonging. We need to examine ourselves, and first of all, in regards to the sincerity of our faith in Jesus. This is a table, but it is a table only for those who authentically believe in Christ. And maybe you're thinking, well, all right, you know, I mean, as I examine my heart, here's part of the problem that I've got. I mean, if I'm really honest, there are at least times, and maybe this is one of those seasons of time for you, when you feel a lot more like Judas than you do the other disciples, and you're like, yeah, I think I'm more like Judas than the other disciples. I mean, I don't want to admit that out loud. Well, then let me remind you what the other disciples do. On this night, when they come to arrest Jesus, every one of them sells him out. 
They flee, they run, they take off. Peter follows from a distance, trying to save his own you know, rear end. He doesn't sell him out for money, but he sells him out for safety. It's just a different thing. He follows him into the courtyard of the high priest where Christ is being beaten and examined and all of this stuff. And Peter finds his place at the fire and Jesus can see and hear him while three times in a row he denies even knowing Christ, one of them in cursing to kind of make the point. On the third time when the cock crows, as the Lord had said it would, it says that Jesus looks at Peter. My goodness. That is a bad day at the office right there. Here's the difference between Judas and these guys. Judas in despair went out and killed himself. These guys were restored. These guys returned. <laughs> These guys came to Christ in authentic faith and brokenness, being real with Him about who they are and what they've done, who He is, and claiming the only means of salvation, which is this blood. Real repentance and real love. They manifest that real love. What is the manifestation of real love for Jesus? Because you do see it in this passage. Judas goes out and sells Jesus out. Peter and John take this kind of ridiculous command of the Lord. Yeah, okay, we'll see a guy with a water jar, you know. He'll meet us. And they obey it. Obedience. It's the sign of, of love. So what this table calls you then to do is to come forward in brokenness and to have your faith renewed. Secondly, we need to examine ourselves in light of the sincerity or in regards to the sincerity of our repentance. I mean, we need to ask ourselves whether we're living in sin and in unrepentance and just, you know, have kind of reached a point where we're just okay with that. Hey, Lord, you know what? We've agreed to disagree on this. Really? Is that right? Like, I wonder what the Lord thinks when we say, you know, we're just going to have to disagree on this one. We're, we're going to agree to disagree. <laughs> like, does heaven laugh or cry at that point? Because it's a, to a toss-up, isn't it? And we all do it. Every one of us. We do. Repentance is not, Lord, I'm, you know, going to do this again tomorrow. And so, but I feel bad about it now. It's, Lord, I, I am it. I'm a sinner, and I, I'm, I'm empty, man, and I, I, I've got this thing, and, and it has me, and I can't seem to get out of it, and I, I don't have the power to do that, but I authentically want to get out of it. I want to cease with the idolatry of it, and I, I'm coming to you in my brokenness to receive, A, forgiveness from it, and B, power by which to be released from it. It's turning. There's a turning in repentance. The prodigal son wakes up and he turns his back on the far country and comes home to the father. He doesn't send the father, a, a, you know, like a, a note saying, send, send more money. I'm, I mean, I'm in desperate straits here. He comes home where he's received. So examine yourself as to the sincerity of your repentance. And then thirdly, we need to examine ourselves as to the sincerity of our love for Christ, but not only for Christ, but for the spiritual family of Christ. And so ask yourself, are there things that you treasure that you love more than you do Jesus? Are there people that you need to go to and ask forgiveness of or to give forgiveness to? It's a two-way street. 
And are there people whose needs you know of, you could meet, but that you've been ignoring, that you need to begin to treat as family because the deal is they are, and this table speaks to it. We need to be passionately involved in the needs of other people, physically and spiritually, both and. We need to do that not just because our Lord says, go take the gospel to the world, but we need to do it too because at least some of those people are family, and many of them will become family if we become attentive to their needs. And what do you do for family? You do whatever it takes. So let's prepare our hearts as we come to this table. I'm going to read to you a passage of Scripture from 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul writes this. And he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Until the meal with all of the apostles and all of us at the end of the age. So I'm going to pray and our elders are are going to come forward. And then do business with the Lord, you know. Examine yourself. We're not in a race. We're not in a hurry. And then come to the table of the Lord and receive the emblems of your forgiveness, of your hope, and of your spiritual and eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for our glorious Savior. We thank you, Lord, for the one Spirit who has taken and captured our hearts, made us alive from the dead to the reality of this Christ and the reality of our sin and the reality of the forgiveness that is found only in Him. We thank You for the one Spirit, for the one faith, for the one Savior, for the one Father who is God and Father of the Lord Jesus and God and Father of us. And we thank You for this one table that any believer can come to and that believers in this moment all over the world will be coming to, having first examined themselves. So, Lord... Speak to us and be gracious to us. You've called us to examine ourselves, not to shame us, but to relieve us from our shame. Not to condemn us, but to bring us to the emblems of the freedom from our condemnation. God, work in our heart to reveal to us, speak to us in this moment about what our sin is, about the things that are in us that are insincere. Lord, let us confess them and repent of them authentically and come forward and then return to our seats, taking these emblems of our Savior and receiving their true joy. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.